Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 71, Asun Sets. Going into 1924, Sun Yat-sen had become more comfortable in his control of Guangdong province and his leadership in the south of China overall, and he became more intent on launching an invasion of the north to crush the warlords once and for all. This was the old dream of his that he hadn't shaken for the past decade, but a critical ingredient had always eluded him, an army loyal enough and professional enough to pull off such a Herculanean feat. With the assistance of Broden and the Soviet advisors, Work on a solution to that began in June 1924. This was the Wampoa Military Academy, a training facility on an island in Guangzhou on its riverfront. Its first commandant was Chiang Kai-shek, and the connections he made among the cadets there would form the officer corps that would keep him in power for years to come. He was joined by a staff of military instructors that had either been trained in Japan or in China's domestic schools. In addition, there were several Soviet advisors that were brought on as staff, including one Vasily Blucher, commander of the Soviet Far East, who became his chief of staff for a time at the school after his arrival in October 1924. Chang and Blucher would form an excellent working partnership, which would be instrumental in the nationalists' success in later years. On top of the advisors, the Soviets also provided the funds needed to establish and maintain the school. In addition to a military education, the cadets were also assigned political classes to ensure their loyalty to the Kuomintang. This institution would be the nationalists' ace in the hole. Every warlord army was bedeviled by either unqualified or untrustworthy leadership, and the Wampoa school went a long way to alleviating those problems, as soon laid the groundwork for the National Revolutionary Army, or the NRA. And yes, I know there's a bit more famous NRA in the West, but work with me here and just remember that in this context, it's the KMT's army. The curriculum also instilled values of camaraderie and common cause among the cadets, meaning they would be able to work and depend on each other, which might sound pretty basic, but keep in mind the warlord armies facing them were ad hoc conglomerations of fair-weather friends, so this was a big step up. Another step up was in July 1924, when at the direction of his Soviet advisors, soon set up a council that would evolve into the Kuomintang's military high command. This council oversaw the recruitment of the NRA's rank and file, and also brought in the various warlord commanders loyal to Soon. The smaller cliques of generals in the Yunnan and Guangxi provinces would never be 100% under the KMT's control, but they became far less able to operate independently and had to work within the KMT's umbrella and not on their own. Soon also took steps to monopolize the use of armed force in his home base. In August 1924, a group of Guangzhou merchants with the support of the right KMT wing and the British imported 9,000 rifles with the intent of forming an independent militia to protect their interests from the communists trying to organize on their turf. Soon tried to peacefully block this and negotiated with the businessmen for two months to back down. That didn't work, though, and soon decided to flex a little and deployed Chang and some of the Wampoa cadets to take the guns by force. On October 15th, Chang and his troops marched into the business district of the city and put it to the torch in an effort to secure the weapons. The damage was not insignificant, and Soon's popularity among the business class took a hit, but it also showed that the KMT wasn't messing around anymore. This was also right around when the warlord battles to the north started to turn against the Zhili clique, and soon in November, left for Beijing to see if he could negotiate a national settlement before making his own play in the North. Which, as I covered a few episodes back, didn't amount to anything, but also turned out not to be the biggest setback for soon. 
The big news while he was in Beijing was that he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He had been in poor health for some time already, and his remaining time was not significant. He would die on March 12, 1925, and all across China, memorial services were held in remembrance for both him and the ideals that he had fought for all his life. His death understandably left a gaping hole in the KMT leadership as, well, he started the dang thing. You probably think that the left and right factions in the party would immediately go after each other without soon, but this being Chinese politics, their conflict became quite a bit more protracted. Soon's death did open the way for Chiang Kai-shek to start taking over control of the nationalist movement. However, his rise was not guaranteed by any means, and while he was seen as one of the most, if not the most, competent military commanders in the party, he was not without political rivals. Chief among them was a man named Wang Jingwei. Wang was politically to Sun what Cheng was to the old leader militarily, namely a fiercely loyal lieutenant that could be counted on not to backstab Sun for his own personal gain. But Cheng and Wang, and yes, I will try to avoid saying their names together as much as possible, did not have any loyalty to each other. Both men were anti-imperialist and frowned upon the exploitive capitalist system taking root in China. But Cheng was more of a traditionalist, who favored reforming the existing society so that it benefited the masses, while Wang sat on the party's left and was more in favor of extreme measures to bring equality to China. And as you might expect given their deferring specializations within the party, the two men came from different places in the world. Wang was a political student who had been a revolutionary with Sun since the early days, even sharing Sun's exile in Japan before the 1911 revolution. He was also much more the intellectual type, having been in contact and interacting with Chinese revolutionaries scattered across the entire globe. He was a thinker and a speaker, tools that enabled him to go far within the KMT political leadership. Chang, on the other hand, was purely a military man. His schooling did actually take him to Japan as well, but this was as a military cadet, not a revolutionary thinker. The humiliation suffered by China early in his life left him casting about for an ideal to believe in, and he found it with Soon. I'll go into more detail of Cheng's life later on, but long story short, he rose through the ranks from what was basically a street gang to being the foremost military man in the KMT over the course of eight very chaotic years in the South. So, the two men came from different places and had perspectives colored by different experiences, but before their rivalry could break out into the open, there was unfinished business to be settled in the south. The warlord Chen Zhongming's army in northern Guangdong had been roundly beaten by the new professional army the KMT had built. But before that group could be finished off, soon it died, and the Guangxi and Yunnan warlords decided their loyalty was more to him than the KMT as a whole, and proceeded to stab the movement in the back and occupy Guangzhou for themselves. What their new and fantastic plan was long-term, I have no idea, but you have to respect how consistently short-sighted every single warlord was. General Blucher devised a counterattack, and the KMT army pulled a 180 back south and descended on Guangzhou in the early part of June. The fighting, if you could really call it that, lasted less than a week and saw several southern warlords decide that a Hong Kong exile was a better way to go than continuing with the personal power business. Chang was at the vanguard of this advance, which was great PR for him, as he was the one to take back Guangzhou and restore order. 
Now the KMT leadership, plus Baroden, got to settle down and figure out just what they were going to do without soon. Naturally, their first steps were to consolidate all the political and economic controls still lingering from the beaten warlords into the party's hands. The next order of business was to roll all those private armies under the party banner. While the provincial cliques of military commanders would not be broken apart, they were folded into the party's organization. They were now part of the KMT, and while they certainly still maintained a large degree of independence, they were considered servants of the party. Their forces were KMT forces, subject to orders from the top, and the taxes they collected were on behalf of the nationalist government, and the order they enforced was at the direction of the party. At this time, Wang was the leading voice in the KMT, having secured several high appointments and leadership positions. Chang was in command of the army, and continued to oversee the officers' academy that churned out the military leadership. The two new most prominent leaders, though, just inherited a boiling pot ready to burst. I promised back in episode 69 that I'd cover the May 30th incident in more detail, and here we are. In case you've forgotten the little sketch that I provided then, here's how the story goes. In Shanghai, workers and students began striking and protesting against the local foreign businesses over their constant interference in Chinese life and the debilitations of the constant civil conflict. These protests got going with the assistance and encouragement of the local KMT and CPC, who worked to translate the anti-imperialist atmosphere in the aftermath of Soon's death into tangible action. In what was the usual story, these protests started peacefully, but turned increasingly aggressive as time went on. On May 15, 1925, Japanese security forces stationed in their piece of Shanghai opened fire on a group of Chinese workers who were invading the mill they worked in, resulting in one of them dying. The worker had been both the group's leader and a communist, and became an instant martyr and a focus for increased calls by the protest's leadership for increased resistance to the foreigners. Demands were also made to roll back the autonomous nature of the foreign concessions, raising the tensions still further. Finally, on May 30th, a group of students started a protest inside the British-ran international section of Shanghai. The international cops intercepted the protesters and violently moved to disperse the group, with numerous students being arrested. Almost 2,000 protesters later marshaled outside the police station where they were being taken to, whereupon things of course turned ugly and the cops opened fire into the crowd. Nine died and another 14 were injured. This predictably created a firestorm of ill will not just in Shanghai, but in all of China. Boycotts started, and foreigners found it expedient to do a lot less traveling outside their concessions. People who had been previously merely sympathetic to the KMT and CPC now started turning out for them in droves all across the nation, even in the areas under northern warlord control, where the response from those guys was tepid at best. Strikes and protests broke out all across the major cities of the nation, especially in ones with a foreign commercial presence. And once the KMT had secured Guangzhou from the traitorous warlords, the people of the city started organizing to take action against the British and French concessions in their city as well. On June 21st, a strike started among the Chinese in both Guangzhou and Hong Kong that was directed at foreign business interests. This alarmed the Westerners, who immediately deployed Marines to maintain control of the situation. On June 23rd, 100,000 or more people had formed a mass protest in Guangzhou to confront the Western authorities there. 
The Marines claimed to hear gunfire, so they opened up on the crowd. I'll leave it to you if you want to believe the excuse of hearing shots fired, but we'll also remind you of the Amherster Massacre where the exact same thing happened. This time, 52 people were dead in the streets, with another 170 wounded in what became known as the Shaki Massacre. I know I'm just kind of banging a drum here, but the Chinese people at this stage were just really ready for an empowered government to start getting some payback on their behalf, or at least reestablish some basic national dignity. The strikes only intensified in the South, again including British-controlled Hong Kong. The CPC had a field day with this as well, rushing to help organize the strikers and agitate for still more protests. This was a new moment in Chinese popular history, as it was now the common worker and farmer that were starting to throw their weight around and show what organized labor could do. This also made the right wing of the KMT very nervous, as the economy of the South, especially in the foreign concessions, was thrown into chaos for over a year. The conservative wing was all for basic reforms and central control, but they made notes that they would eventually have to tame the labor movement before it ran away on them. They especially noted how successful the CPC were at agitating those masses into action, and again the thoughts of the conservatives turned to nipping them in the bud. These feelings came to a head in areas outside of direct nationalist control. In Shanghai on July 5th, the official party apparatus there gave the order that all KMT members were to abide by Soon's original three principles and specifically denounce the concept of class struggle, something very near and dear to the communists' hearts. The communists actually managed to steer a more moderate course in response. They basically laid out that the right-wing elements in Shanghai were being hysterical and advocated that the alliance between the KMT and CPC had been a smashing success and everything was fine. The KMT hardliners even further up north around Beijing didn't really like that and in November 1925 issued a declaration stating that the Soviet alliance was terminated, the council that soon had set up to monitor the reliability of the party was to be dissolved, and Wang Jingwei was to be dismissed. They also called for a party congress in Shanghai to sort all this out, right after having taken over the party offices there. You might be wondering where all these party bosses from the north came from. All the action had been down south, and the warlords were running the table up north. Well, keep in mind the KMT, and the CPC for that matter, were national organizations that had branches operating both out in the open and underground all across China, not just in the south. I haven't mentioned them because, well, they haven't mattered in the struggles so far. The main contributions they made up to this point were in spreading the message of their group's ideologies and preparing the people for life under new authorities once the move north started. This particular group of conservatives had no military or significant financial backing, and for the life of me, I have no idea what they were thinking in making their demands. Cheng the Soviets, the CPC, and Wang, despite some inherent mistrust or conflicting interests between all of them, unified to head this challenge off. In response to the Shanghai office's call for a party congress there, they simply set up a snap congress in Guangzhou. In January of 1926, most of the KMT, except obviously the Shanghai and Beijing groups, gathered in Guangzhou. They agreed to expel the ringleaders in Shanghai and added insult to injury by giving Baroden a special pat on the back for being such a good ally. It was kind of a lenient outcome for the right faction of the KMT, given how easily they had been overruled. 
it was actually Wang who advocated to keep the internal purge to just the leading conservatives who had started the row in the first place. His idea being that the party did not need a civil war at this critical juncture. Which, hey, good on him, but he'd probably come to regret his mercy later on. The leftists were triumphant during this Congress, with Wang becoming the clear party leader and the CPC also making big gains in the joint leadership, as many of the KMT's own leaders were now also members of their party as well. Chang too benefited as he was appointed as part of the nine-man ruling council of the party, the Central Executive Committee, alongside Wang. The crisis also demonstrated the continued need for a strong and reliable military, which meant that while Chang was only one man on a very left-leaning executive committee, it was pretty obvious he was going to be considered one of the de facto party leaders, if only because of his reliable support in the NRA. During the immediate fallout of the Shaki massacre, the Revolutionary Army was again set on the march in mid-1925. They returned to the east of Guangdong to finish off the last of Chen's forces, and also deployed west to drive out some armies hailing from Sichuan. These campaigns all had the now familiar trademarks of Soviet advisors instructing Chinese agitators, both communist and nationalist, to head out in advance of the armies to set up a support network among the local populations to prepare the way for the NRA advances. By the spring of 1926, the remaining warlords in the Guangxi and Yunnan provinces agreed to come under direct KMT control. This allowed the party to set up bases in those provinces that began to establish a semblance of official governance, as well as bringing their armies into the official revolutionary army. Other miscellaneous forces in southern Hunan, which were squeezed between Wu Peifu and the KMT, opted to join the latter. The stage was now set for the northern expedition to finally get going. I'll be picking up with that massive campaign next week, so do not miss it. It's going to be a winding, two-year cataclysm riddled with intrigue and betrayal. But I'm not quite done with this week either. I'm going to spoil something for you. The Northern Expedition is going to be a smashing success, even taking into account some of the hiccups it faced along the way. But the NRA was still kind of a small army, and it wasn't even the most well-equipped either. At the commencement of the Northern Campaign, it could count around 100,000 men under its banner, many of them soldiers who still followed the Southern warlords who had been folded under the Kuomintang's banner. This wasn't an unimpressive force, but they faced hundreds of thousands just to the north against Wu Peifu and Sun Chuanfeng, and many more beyond that under the command of Zhang Zhuolin. But despite that numerical superiority, these future battles were going to be brutal on the warlords, and it's worth examining the reasons why the warlord era as we've known it would be coming to an end. The most straightforward reason is that militarily, the KMT just had more motivation. They had spent over two years from June 1924 to July 1926 building a standardized officer corps that consisted of fully trained leaders. These leaders had been tried and tested in two years of provincial warfare pacifying Guangdong and defending it from outside attack. The Soviet officers were there too, and they had learned very quickly what worked and what didn't while fighting in China. More than the ad hoc leadership of the, of the warlords, they knew how to get the most out of their men, and what their limits were. Unlike the warlords, they could communicate straightforwardly, with no political games going on under the surface, and knew how to coordinate. Basic stuff, but when you have that capability and the other guy doesn't, it makes all the difference. The warlord armies, for their part, were as divided as ever. The first target of the expedition was going to be Wu Peifu, who ruled over Hunan and Hubei provinces outright, but had the bulk of his troops north contesting Fang Yuzheng over Henan. 
It would be Wu's inadequate southern garrison troops that would be his first line of defense. Sun Feng held a bigger domain, five provinces in east-central China, but had been forced to divulge more authority to his provincial commanders as a condition for their loyalty. In short, despite whatever numerical or armament advantages they held, these warlords were woefully out of position to meet the new challenge from the south. It certainly didn't hurt either that the vast majority of the Chinese truly hated the warlords by this point, which isn't to say that they were ever terribly popular, but they had hit rock bottom by 1926. Before the fall of the Qing Empire, the most dominant class of the upper crust were the intelligentsia who controlled the levers of government. Truth be told, the rise of the military men becoming the movers and shakers in the country was seen as something of an aberration. Remember back in episode 62 when I talked about people falling over themselves to get through the examination system to get ahead in life? Well, they certainly hadn't been falling over themselves to join the army. No love was lost going the other way, and the army men for their part didn't make any attempt at maintaining the intelligentsia status in the nation once they had taken it over. The educated were courted primarily because they had technical skills that were useful and could assist in propaganda efforts to build any given warlord's legitimacy. By and large, though, the intelligentsia were uninterested in such arrangements. The military men could never offer positions of real influence to them when there were so many subordinates to satisfy, and a chronic shortage of cash on account of all the military spending meant that the dreams of non-military projects were always dashed. With no real other viable options, the educated classes turned to the KMT and CPC. The business classes and the traditional landholders also favored getting rid of the warlords as well, which could be seen as a little confusing because the Kuomintang in 1926 was joined at the hip with the communists. But conditions had gotten really, really bad for the moneyed interests of the country. So much so that many decided that backing the right wing of the KMT and risking the advancement of the CPC was better than continuing with the warlords. Soon had promised private property would be respected, and limits on their ability to exploit the masses was considered an acceptable price. The reason why these concessions were considered acceptable was because the money classes themselves were in the process of being ruthlessly exploited. In order to fund nearly a decade of civil war, the warlords had drained the provinces of much of their wealth. In the cities, businessmen were overtly shaken down for cash, and financial institutions were forced to deliver loans with very vague conditions on being paid back. In the countryside, landholders were assessed property taxes years in advance. Attempts to resist were met with violence, and the rule of law evaporated when it came to the financial needs of the military men. This was how the KMT became the preferable option to the elites, even with the CPC being right there. And when it came to the working classes of China, this is where the CPC really began to shine. I've touched on it before, but I'll do it again here. The workers of China were well and truly impoverished, and by the 1920s, it had become critically so. The vast majority of workers were agricultural, and the vast majority of that vast majority had to rent farmland from the massive estate holders I mentioned a moment ago. They had to work the land with no mechanization or fertilizers, and grow enough to pay the landlord and feed themselves. Famine was rife, homes couldn't be upkept properly, and the deprivations of the warlords made it all worse. Soon in the KMT were traditionally a middle-class movement, but the addition of the CPC into their ranks and the reforms impressed upon them by the Soviets changed all that. The CPC, for their part, worked their asses off trying to grow their party into a truly proletarian one. What had been basically a social club for leftist intellectuals was transformed by 1926 
into a recognizably working-class one. Also, the great benefit of joining with the KMT was in plugging into their network of connections as well, meaning that the CPC branches across China were able to set up contacts with unions and local farming associations. While the CPC's leadership desired the loyalties of the urban proletariat the most, they found rivalries with non-communist unions and crackdowns by authorities outside of Guangdong to be a big problem, and their numbers in the city suffered from the peaks they enjoyed after the May 30th incident. Far more success was found out in the countryside. The peasants had always been exploited by the landlords, but with those same landlords being squeezed by the bigger fish above them, conditions were ripe for a communist message. Vital, too, was that the CPC enjoyed the freedom to operate openly in areas controlled by the nationalists, specifically in Guangdong. There, the local farmer associations, backed by the communists, saw their membership rise from 172,000 in spring 1925 to 625,000 in spring 1926. Still small given the millions of farmers in the province, but these groups were also turning out political leaders that would go out further into the countryside and spread the good word of communism. And this spread of sympathy would have very direct consequences for the fate of the Northern Expedition. I've been rattling off provincial names like they're pieces on a board, but they are gargantuan geographic areas. And the warlord armies typically stuck to the main roads and population centers, even on their home turf. With sympathetic peasants placed ahead of the invasion routes, NRA troops would have local guides to show them paths around enemy strongpoints. The rugged terrain of much of China usually gave the defender a decent advantage, but the NRA oftentimes had the better lay of the land regardless. The overall atmosphere in the country could best be described as revolutionary. The chaos of the past decade left the people ready to welcome anyone with a vision as liberating heroes. And while the KMT would never realize their ambitions to their fullest, the promise of change was enough at that point. Join me next week as the Northern Expedition is finally launched and the struggle for modern China really gets underway. As always, thank you very much for listening.